Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. Uh, We got a great one today, and I know you expect me to say for a change, but I'm not going to say it. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to say it, and I'll tell you why. As infrequent as my great ones are, and it's embarrassing, they are so infrequent. I am still not going to say for a change because this one is Donnie Lithwick, the legal scholar who writes brilliantly about the Supreme Court for Slate. And this is her, I don't know, uh, eighth or, or, or ninth show. Peter, do we know, do we know which? Uh, no, no, sorry. Hmm. Uh, would, would there be a way for us to keep track of that? Sure, I, I guess. Now, you, you've probably heard me describe the Al Franken podcast as the daily without the resources of the New York Times, and I'm sure the, the daily has someone who keeps a track of things like that. I could do it. It couldn't be that hard. Okay, I, I don't know. It's, it's eight or nine shows that Dolly has done, whatever, and... Every one of them has been uniformly brilliant with invaluable historical perspective and fascinating scholarly insights that are instantly accessible to even my my thickest listeners. That is a fact. And today is maybe my best of all nine or ten. It could even be more. Whatever. Whatever. Or maybe less. Seven? Fine. Because today's conversation is a review of this year's disastrously awful SCOTUS term, featuring, of course, the evil Dobbs decision from Justice Alito, which just so egregiously ignored the historical record, particularly of the debate in Congress after the Civil War about the 14th Amendment, which freed the slaves. That amendment was in no small part about the the cruelty of slavery, especially when it came to bodily autonomy, family autonomy, and reproductive rights. Slaves were routinely raped, and their babies uh, became slaves and could be sold to other plantations. This was part of the debate in Congress on the 14th Amendment. Now, to get to the intent of an amendment or any law, you go to the debate. And unenumerated rights, which is uh, what the Ninth Amendment is all about, says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That was an important part of the debate in the lead up to the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Now, the American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians 
had submitted amicus briefs presenting this history, completely ignored by Alito. And, and Dahlia gets into this very powerfully. Not only did Alito completely ignore these historians, Alito's final opinion was worse than the original leaked draft, adding just gratuitously insulting attacks on the justices who, who wrote uh, Roe and, and Casey. But forget that. The day before the release of this decision, saying that each state will decide what reproductive rights that, that women and girls within its borders have and don't have, the court had issued a decision the day before saying that states can't write certain laws controlling guns in their their states. And one disastrous decision after another overriding the EPA's authority to control greenhouse gases, uh, a ridiculous one that we'll talk about on prayer in public schools, but the announcement on the last day of the term that they're taking a case that would give state legislatures, 30 of which are controlled by Republicans, a North Carolina case that would give complete control of administering, of counting, of certifying votes, sole authority, gives the state legislatures sole authority over who wins elections. That's the most frightening of all. And we'll be getting that decision at the end of June 2023. So it's a great one today with Dahlia Lithwick and a tragic one for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, Dahlia. Hi, Al. Uh, first, thanks for doing this. I uh, asked you to come on and review the uh, SCOTUS term. You're in high demand right now, and I really appreciate it because 
I, I really think you're brilliant on this stuff. <laughs> Thank and you. And usually to boot funny, uh, you know, for a Supreme Court scholar, <laughs> but not so much the last couple of times. Uh, this is our third in kind of a trilogy. We did one with Sarah Stace, who's president of Planned Parenthood in Minnesota and the Dakotas and I believe uh, Nebraska, when the court ruled uh, on the fucking shadow docket on SB8, the Texas law banning abortions after six weeks. Uh, that was depressing. <laughs> uh, mainly because Sarah described how awful uh, things already were <laughs> for women in the Dakotas and other states. And then after the leak of Alito's draft on Dobbs, uh, which obviously overturned, Ro, I had you on with Joyce Vance. That was more angry. I, I had never seen <laughs> Joyce Vance angry. Yeah. But she was. And you were too. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard you sarcastic uh, before <laughs> and edgy, but not, not quite so pissed off. And in that one, you went uh, off on uh, how our, our system of government is not democratic. It's not even close. Five justices from presidents who lost the popular vote, Senate Republicans representing 45% of people, gerrymandering. And now I've been, I've been listening to you uh, elsewhere, and like a lot of us, uh, you sound very alarmed about the future. Is that, is that fair to say? Wow, I feel like we're that emojis movie, you know, <laughs> with all the little feelings. Yeah, no, I'm, I have progressed from sad to angry to alarmed to borderline hair on fire. And I think, you know, one big turning point for me was the court taking that independent state legislature's case at the very, mm -hmm. very last seconds of the term. And I know we're going to talk about it, but that takes us from being in a kind of a slow-moving meltdown into we could, like, literally one year from now, Al, in July of 2023, you and I can be having a conversation about how the Supreme Court essentially just decided the 2024 presidential election in the last week of the term. And I just think we use the word existential way too casually, and I think that decision to grant that case is, in fact, existential. What is the what's it called? The independent, the independent state legislature doctrine. It's the most chilling, entirely made-up doctrine that we've never heard of, and it's essentially this completely hatched in an underground lab by you know all the dark money and the and the sort of fake intellectual law review industrial complex that you talk about so much and it's got no rooting in the constitution it's got no rooting anywhere and it is the idea in its craziest iteration, that is the thing that John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark were trying to push in the 2020 election, which is that state legislatures, this is the, the, the most extreme purest form of this idea, can simply decide to throw away the electoral outcomes in their states, and they can just hand in a ballot of fake electors because state legislatures have the ultimate authority on uh, how elections are run. And in the sort of 
slightly less chilling uh, version of it. You know, they're saying that states, this particular challenge, Moore v. Harper, which the court just agreed, is a challenge to congressional maps in North Carolina and the state's Republican-led... Which were gerrymandered wildly by the state legislature. Grotesquely gerrymandered. And uh, and the state's Republican-led legislature is now saying, nope, we are the only ones who can set any of the rules for elections. Not, Not state judges. Not state judges, not federal judges, and not, again, in the truly bonkers version that's being pushed, that state uh, secretaries of state and governors can't do anything, that it's simply the legislature that gets to decide every aspect of, you know, from partisan gerrymandering to ranked choice vote voting, voter protections, all of that is the purview only of the state legislature, and no one can intrude on that. And, you know, I guess it's just worth saying, but right now at this moment, Republicans have complete control over 30 state legislatures. Yep. So it's ball game. If a couple of state legislatures want to do in 2024 what they didn't do or weren't brave enough to do or weren't. E- Eastman and uh, Clark, they jumped the gun. Yeah. And they did it bad and sloppy and shitty. Right. They did it with like toilet paper on their shoe and not fully coordinating with state actors. And they got checked. Clark had not just toilet paper on his shoe, but um, used <laughs> I mean, toilet paper on his shoe. These guys got sanctioned <laughs> for pushing this argument. And now, as we all sort of watch the January 6 hearings and we're like, ha ha ha, that crazy scheme could never have happened. And we're seeing it being pushed in this case by the North Carolina legislature. We know, and this is the really, if I haven't freaked you out enough, there are already four votes on the current court that believe this is a thing. Well, it took four votes to take the uh, grant cert. Right. Um, That's correct. So, and and maybe the last thing I would say about it is is that this is an idea that was too extreme for the Bush v. Gore court, right? So, this comes up in Bush v. Gore, and um, there's not three votes. You know, at the at the time, Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Scalia and Thomas tried to push a version of this independent state legislature theory, and they couldn't pick off any more votes. But now, just in 2020 alone, we've seen Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and t- sometimes Brett Kavanaugh all signaling that, yeah, this is kind of an interesting theory, and I'd like to explore it further. So the idea that an idea that was too insane for the Bush v. Gore court, the one that stole an election, is now like free floating in the ether and that states are just going to be allowed to do this. I mean, there's no point in running the 2024 election if this case goes the way we think it might. This is fascism. Fortunately, uh, this court has a lot of integrity. (laughs) See, thankfully, you're still funny. That is huge relief. To uh, because, everywhere. you know, you have to worry about why, how they make decisions. And of course, they're making it totally on uh, constitutional grounds and the law, going to the law, not cherry picking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about what they did this term to get some perspective on, on what the chances <laughs> are that we're going to be completely fucked after the next term. So, um, <sighs> what should we go to? <laughs> well, I guess let's go to uh, uh, the big one, 
the overturning of uh, of Roe, which is Dobbs. My God, I I read uh, Alito. I I don't, you know what? I just I don't I did not meet him. Uh, I, we had dinner, the senators uh, with the, the Supreme Court justice, but I just didn't for some reason didn't think to go up and chat with him. I don't seem I, I like him from this opinion. <laughs> And he seems like to cherry pick stuff. And also, I mean, the idea of of picking a guy who from this guy, Hale, what's his name? Um, Matthew, Sir Matthew. Matthew Hale from the 17th century, uh, citing him. Why you would cite a guy. Notable witch burner. Who burned at least two witches. Now, people might draw the conclusion that he's sexist, but did he ever sentence a warlock? There is no evidence of warlock sentencing, but please tweet us if you know of Matthew-related wow. warlocking. Why, why? Didn't the clerk go, um, uh, Your Honor, I think that it might be stronger if you left out uh, Matthew Hale? <laughs> because- so you remember how pissed off Joyce and I were at how like snarky and contemptuous and kind of bottom feeding this opinion was? Mm-hmm. One of the crack ups is for the first time in U.S. Supreme Court history, it didn't need to be a clerk because historians had <laughs> all of May and all of June to fact check this guy. And not just to say, you know, maybe don't cite the guy who invented the idea that there's no rape in a marriage because the woman is your property. Did he invent that or just think it? I think he's credited with that. Uh, I think he is credited with the the marital rape exception. Um, And also (laughs) just wrote like just hideous. And and I did the marital rape exception. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. He had Uh t-shirts made. So, like, this guy is contemptible in every single way, but not just the fact-checking of maybe you could find a better source for some of your stuff, but just fact-checking all the historians who fact-checked his history in real time. Not that this is a dubious source and maybe you could do something that isn't so dripping with disdain for women. And he changed nothing. I mean, he had two months from the leak to take out the parts where he was crapping all over, say, Brett Kavanaugh's mentor, Anthony Kennedy, right? Crapping all over him. It stayed in. He had two months to take out the parts where he mocked uh, Harry Blackman, uh, the author of Roe, mocked every Republican nominee to the court who's ever upheld Roe or Casey or their progeny. And none of it came out. In fact, the, the major additions that he added to the Dobbs draft that we all saw in May that sent me and uh, Joyce into orbit was just crapping all over the con- concurrences and the dissent. He's like, oh, wait, I haven't been quite hateful enough. Wait, let me be a little bit more hateful to the uh, Justice Stephen Breyer who's retiring this week. I think I could probably take a swing at the chief justice. Oh, I did. That's like what he added. More more just gratuitous snark and cruelty. And the other piece of that is that like the big critique, and I know Joyce and I talked about this, is that women and their lives and their economic interests and equality and like not dying, you know, in uh, miscarriage situations, all of that that he ignored in the draft Oh, he ignored it again in the final. Let, let's talk about the 14th Amendment, which I've heard you talk about in terms of, of Roe. 
and the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment is uh, that is the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So, in other words, you know, don't read the right to you know freedom of religion or to bear arms because we have this. Uh, we need a militia. Don't that it's not limited to that. There's there's other unenumerated rights. Now you go to the Fourteenth Amendment, and this is I'm I'm echoing you, so I want you to say it <laughs> better than me. You go to the Fourteenth Amendment, which basically is known as the uh, freeing slaves, but it has a lot more to it in terms of just the the, the uh, history of it, right? So this is actually, I think, really material to the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings, because as you may recall, at the time, some of your, you know, friends and neighbors like John Cornyn and Marsha Blackburn were snarking about unenumerated rights and these rights that are just ridiculous and there's no such thing and these so-called substantive due process rights there, these ephemeral non-existent rights that Democrats and liberals plucked out of nowhere. And I got increasingly frustrated that I didn't hear any of the Dems on the Judiciary Committee advance any kind of defense. It's like they just seeded that as though that was just a, a true thing, that maybe the unenumerated rights or the substantive due process rights that are protected in the 14th Amendment are just wholly imaginary and have no force. So I got really obsessed and I started reading first this wonderful scholar, David Gans at the Constitutional Accountability Center, and he pulls from amazing work by done by this woman, Peggy Cooper Davis uh, at mm -hmm. NYU and her book, hilariously called Neglected Stories, which has been completely neglected. <laughs> and uh, this is all work she did years ago. And what she essentially said is that for those of you who've forgotten what the 13th and 14th Amendment were attempting to codify, they wanted to protect, and it goes to exactly what you're saying about the Ninth Amendment. It wasn't a menu of, you know, these, this is what makes you free. There were things that made you free if you were a formerly enslaved person that were not protected in the Constitution. And among them were this bucket of rights of bodily autonomy and the right to determine the size of your family and the right to be married to the person you love. All of these rights that get really pushed into the, the 13th and 14th Amendment because slaves, and this is really important, mm -hmm. could be sold. They could be separated from their partners to whom they were married. Their kids. Their children were, were uh, you know, you could be raped by any white man and your children would be slaves. So that becomes a huge economic driver. And all of your children can then be sold away from under you. There is nothing protecting your family. And work. all of this, all of this routinely happened. Routinely happens, and there's heartbreaking material. Um, now, this is in Professor Dorothy Roberts' book that I just read called Torn Apart. But that what formerly enslaved- Now, would Alito go like, oh, well, that's too bad. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, it's you know? so interesting. I don't know that he knows. I, I, I'm almost of the view that if you read the speeches and, and uh, the statements that were made in order to give force to this idea that- to be free, you have to be able to create your own family and raise your own children without the interference of the state. I don't know if he read that. So what you're talking about is the history of the arguments, the debate for this amendment, right? Uh, I mean, yes. what the intent 
Yes. Of the, the Congress was. Of, of the Reconstruction Amendments was to create a zone of family and bodily privacy and autonomy that was not subject to uh, the state and state laws. And aren't you supposed to look to that debate? Well, that's the crack up is that he pretends that he's looking at originalism and text and history and the original purpose of these uh, of laws and statutes and amendments and constitutional provisions. But then he, there's no, no evidence anywhere, in his opinion, that he's in any way aware that these unenumerated rights actually exist or that they matter. He just bats it away with the kind of ridiculous, like, well, there's no abortion in the, in the Constitution. You know, I did, Al, I had this woman, Dorothy Roberts, who also wrote about this uh, in her book on, on my podcast last week. And one of the things that she describes in her book, which broke my heart, it's called Torn Apart, is that after freed slaves were emancipated, all they wanted to do was find their kids. And they would be going around the country and placing ads and imploring people, like, I'm just trying to find the person I am married to. I'm just trying to find my children. That is the frame around what these Reconstruction Amendments are. And that's 1868 is the yeah. 14th. So, so this was, that's part of the history. Yeah. And, and I know that when you write an opinion like this, that you're, you cherry pick to make your argument. But to leave this out, especially after it had been leaked, and he had all this time to at least address that, did he address that at all? He addressed it not at all. And I think maybe also, um, you know, just worth adding that I haven't heard, as I said, a really vocal embrace of any rationale for these substantive due process unenumerated rights from, you know, a lot of leadership on the Dem side. And it's not good enough to say, oh, well, you know, we like Roe because even though they made shit up as it went along, we're kind of for abortion. That's just not the case. And there's a long line of cases that begin with that substantive due process uh, right that is located in the 14th Amendment on, you know, case called Pierce, a case called Myers, all these cases that are about how you raise your children and the state can't educate your children in a way that you see uh, as, as in conflict with your religion. And you can't be subject to involuntary sterilization. Uh, and you can't, by the way, be told you can not marry someone of a different race, right? That's Loving versus Virginia. Right. This whole line of cases right up to Griswold and Roe are all under this idea of substantive due process of unenumerated rights. And by the way, those are exactly the rights that parents in Florida are citing when they say they don't want their kids to be taught critical race theory. You know, I mean, I noticed that Clarence Thomas uh, said the silent part out loud. Um, gee, <laughs> this uh, this decision uh, opens up uh, uh, Griswold. It also wouldn't it uh, loving versus Virginia, right? Well, this was a tiny bit of a like Twitter freak out because everybody thought he was using it to get out of his own uh, interracial marriage, and I think that's not quite correct. Well, she's in trouble. The other case, she is in trouble. It would it would solve the problem. So he could of, say, yeah, not legal. It was not legal. <laughs> the problem of Ginny. I think that he explicitly named the three cases he said that are on the table 
are uh, Obergefell, which is marriage equality, Mm -hmm. Lawrence v. Texas, which is the um, same-sex intimacy, the anti-sodomy law in Texas, and uh, Griswold, which is contraception, the right to use contraception in your marriage. He didn't name Loving. And of course, as I said, everybody piled on and said, Loving is, is different in that it's rooted both in the Equal Protection Clause and in the Substantive Due Process Clause. So you can sort of say... Maybe he believes that, you know, anti-miscegenation laws really are too racist to be tolerated. But I think you're exactly right. The fact that he put on the table, let's go for these three things, while Brett Kavanaugh, like, wrings his hands in his concurrence and is like, oh, nobody worried. Nobody's coming for marriage equality. Nobody's coming to reinstate the Texas anti-sodomy laws. And, of course— Well, uh, (laughs) you know, stare decisis is so important. I remember him saying that in his hearing. Well, I think that the tell is when they tell you we're not coming for the next thing, you should know that they're coming for it. And it's no accident that we're already hearing uh, from Florida, from Texas, from around the country, state officials saying, of course, we're going to now bring a case to challenge marriage equality. Of course, we're going to challenge same-sex marriage. We're going to challenge, in Texas, they're talking about uh, the, the sodomy. ban And contraception oh. is already, I mean, I know we talked about this with Joyce because I think Folks don't fully realize that there have been states in the intervening time since Dobbs that are not giving out Plan B, right? They're not giving out the morning after pill. This is stuff that every one of us considers to be contraception, emergency contraception, but it may fall under the now huge sweeping umbrella of abortifacients, of things that cause abortions. And so you are going to see already uh, states going after contraception or what most rational people think of as contraception. Under this, I mean, I guess we should just say it, Al, like theological notion that the court is now willing to entertain that life begins at conception. Which is, this is what I want to ask when I don't hear people talk about it. Uh, and maybe it's because I'm, I'm not sophisticated enough on uh, jurisprudence and law. This seems to me like the fir- First Amendment guarantees, <laughs> you know, your freedom of religion, right? Okay. If you believe that life begins at conception and you're pregnant, don't have an abortion. That's your, that's your religion. You believe that. Coney Barrett believes that. Uh, I think all the Catholics believe that, right? Um, <laughs> the Republican Catholics on the court, uh, which is how many of them? Five or six? Uh, five. five. I mean, Sonny okay. Sotomayor is a non-Republican Catholic, and uh, Neil Gorsuch is a non-Catholic Republican. He was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and now is an Episcopalian. So mm-hmm. I count him, because uh, I'm Jewish, <laughs> I count him as a Catholic, because that's my right as a Jew. But what I'm saying is, Casey and Roe were compromises. They said, we know people philosophically or religiously think of a fetus as life but some people don't (laughs) you know and this is founded in the 14th amendment your freedom to to choose your family to have control of your life and alito will go like well they didn't see that in the when they made the in 1850 uh, 68 well no women couldn't vote in 1868 it's changed. It's changed. This is so frustrating to me. Is this, is this like a religious thing? And why should it be? 
Well, or what's I, the argument here? What's what's the, the more sophisticated debate? No, here? there there isn't one. And I think one of the things that is so problematic about Dobbs and the way it comes down and the way, you know, Alito throws around words like potential life and, you know, fetal life and, uh, you know, unborn human being life, uh, all of that, right, is just dog whistles. That is theological dogma. It is not a, a, a scientific principle. It's not a medical principle. I mean, it's just, you know, there was briefing in this case from scholars who not only believe that life begins at conception, but that women who do anything to harm their fetus should be instantly treated as criminals. I mean, that's there. And the language they use is insolment. Uh, which is a theological idea of, you know, when insolment happens. And if you're asking me, does every other faith tradition uh, hold that life begins at insolment? I mean, of course, it does not. Uh, and in fact, your religion and mine, Judaism, is actually unbelievably permissive, not just in terms of like at least some visions of uh, uh, Jewish law that hold that actually the fetus is not uh, a separate person or a viable person until it takes its first breath, which is really, really generous, but also has unbelievably capacious ideas about the health of the mother, the mental health of the mother, uh, the health of the baby, all of that gets taken into account under not just Jewish law, but tons and tons of other laws. Uh, the maybe, National Council- Maybe, Dahlia, maybe shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that has happened in recent weeks- Dahlia. <laughs> one of the things that has happened in recent this weeks- is Anti-Semites, listen to this. I know just they do. For this yeah. very kind of thing. Al, I feel confident they already hate us. You're right. Okay, keep going. No, I was just going to say one of the one of the interesting turns in the last couple of weeks is that a synagogue in Florida is filing under suit, um, actually under the state uh, law, which is even more protective of uh, privacy and religious freedom, and saying no, like as Jews, we our religious liberty is violated. Uh, I will say, like Reason Magazine published what uh, I guess they thought was a perfectly sensible article a few weeks ago by a professor saying, well, that's not a problem because only Orthodox Jews have sincerely held beliefs and Reform and conservative Jews are not, in fact, sincere in their faith. And so they their religious freedom uh, can be trammeled. So just it's coming, right? Like, I think the idea that uh, we're all going to benefit from And that was Matthew Hale's great, great, great... <laughs> Zero uh, witches burned, but uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, listen, your bigger framing question, why don't we talk about this as a religious problem? You tell me. Okay, well, let's move on. <laughs> no, you have to answer me. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I think it is. I think it's a philosophical, look, look, there are people who believe life begins at conception. Uh, many of them on the Supreme Court, I guess. Most of them, arguably. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, Coney Barrett, when she was a law professor at Notre Dame, she put uh, her name on a full page ad sponsored by St. Joseph County Right to Life in the South Bend uh, Tribune that stated, we the citizens of Michiana. 
And that's evidently Michigan and Indiana combined, which I think is where the Handmaid's Tale is set. <laughs> we, the citizens of Michiana, oppose abortion on demand, defend the right to life from fertilization to natural death. Okay, uh, good for you. I mean, great. I, I, and we should recognize that. It's not a ridiculous thing to think at all. It's a philosophical or religious or spiritual thing to believe. But on the other hand, why don't you fucking guys real <laughs> acknowledge the, the opposite thing, which is people have the right to their beliefs. And that's why a compromise, a very sound compromise, was, was, has been existing for 50 years that people rely on. And that's what Stare Decisis is about. It was supposed to be. And that's why, I mean, you know, to be completely serious uh, for one minute, uh, you know, we're I was now being serious. No, no, I know, <laughs> I know. But I'm just, you know, I, I, I think like this is, this is in some states already, you know, just in the days since Dobbs, creating just these catastrophic, you know, refusals to give women methotrexate, you know, which is a necessary cancer drug because it's also ostensibly an abortion-causing drug. Guidance is being written about whether an ectopic pregnancy, how far along the mother has to go in terms of life, vital life science <laughs> being in crisis before an intervention can be done to can, save can, can a pregnancy. You, you can't deliver an ectopic. No, exactly. To save an a pregnancy that cannot be saved. So this is all stuff. That's crazy. It's crazy, and it's in violation of doctors' medical oaths, and it's in violation of standards of care. But the point is to just foment panic and confusion. And if you have these laws, some of which really are these bounty laws, right, that are going to put doctors out of business because somebody across the country is going to sue them and shut down their practice, the point is to freeze everybody from doing anything. And it is why in some contexts, you know, you're seeing abortion funds that are afraid to give advice. You're seeing clinics that are having to not perform abortions on women who travel from states that have trigger bans. Like all of this mayhem that has just been unloosed upon us by, thank you, Brett Kavanaugh, who says, oh, Americans will sleep better tonight because <laughs> the problem is solved. We'll send it back to the states. And what they have just unloosed is unthinkable cruelty and medical abuse and trauma and let's mention the 10-year-old child in Ohio who got pregnant through a, a rape who had to be taken to Indiana for termination that's what's coming and i just think that the idea that a few people have this religious notion of fetal personhood or potential life and that subsumes all of the suffering and pain and as you say death all of that stuff, it, it doesn't warrant a mention in Justice Alito's opinion. That's what we're going to live with now. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Dahlia Lithwick. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, 
As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. We're back with Dahlia Lithwick. Okay, let's move on to some of the other decisions. The day before, they decided that uh, the states couldn't make laws <laughs> about guns. Right. That that was their 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 decision, right? And right. that states didn't have the right to uh, like say that people can't go out with concealed weapons <laughs> and stuff. Right. And this is in some sense a narrower decision because it goes to a, a New York regulation regime that um, allows people to concealed carry, but they have to show what's called proper cause. They don't just get a license. They have to go before, you know, a magistrate or a judge or some licensing official and show some credible need for why they they need it. And there's seven other states that have that kind of, you know, it's not that the, the government gives you your permit. It's that they have some discretion. And so what the court does, as you say, is scuttle the New York regime and it under the theory that it's too much discretion and nobody should be able to decide for you whether you have enough cause uh, to concealed carry outside the home. So technically, it only affects New York and the states that have that law, though I should note it's an enormous number of the U.S. population lives in those states. But as a formal matter, you're exactly right. It takes the Heller decision, which gave the Second Amendment right to own a gun in your home for self-protection, and it expands it to say, if you can own it in your home, you can own it anywhere. And so even though you're going to see states scrambling to have sort of less discretionary licensing regimes, what the court ultimately says is exactly what you said. You should be allowed to carry a gun. Nobody should be able, absent, you know, fingerprinting and background checks, but nobody should be able to make that decision for you. And what it really does is it takes what was supposed to be the cabined idea in Heller that you could have a gun in your home for self-protection and says the whole world is now your home. Okay. Um, one of the uh, rulings I was really disturbed by, among others, was the West Virginia Power, whatever, utility versus the EPA. And that's basically saying the EPA can't uh, make rules about, you know, can't make rules about carbon dioxide emissions, et cetera. That's basically saying that agencies shouldn't have 
the power that that should be done by Congress, right? Right. Which which can't do anything, by the way. Now, right, and and actually, even when it does something, uh, it's not correct. <laughs> like if Congress gets it together for five seconds and actually enacts legislation, that will also get struck down. But but you're completely correct, and this EPA case uh, sort of came at the very end of the term and it comes, you know, we talked about the independent state legislature doctrine at the top of the show and how that was just invented from whole cloth. This uses another doctrine invented from almost whole cloth called the major questions doctrine. And it essentially says that Congress cannot delegate authority to regulatory agencies to do things like clean the environment unless they do it with incredible specificity. And uh, here in this case, uh, EPA, uh, Chief Justice Roberts makes a decision that uh, the regulation here that would have regulated emissions uh, is, is not enough specific. It's a quote unquote major question. And so it needs to be specifically announced uh, in the the law so that the regulatory agency knows what the law is. And the only other thing that I think is important is, we've talked about this a little bit, I think, in prior years, but this is of a piece with attacks on what's called the Chevron Doctrine, which is a doctrine that says- Chevron deference? Yes. That that says that if there's a question about whether uh, a regulatory agency's interpretation of its statutes is ambiguous, you err on the side of thinking they know what they're talking about because they have millions of doctors and scientists. You know, here, here's, a, I saw Ben Sass, and I can't remember, this was in some hearing, where he was talking about, basically about the Chevron uh, deference, and I think it was in, it was in judiciary. And he talked about, he said, the ACA regs should have been written by Congress, which is insane. I mean, I just see, you know, Ben Sass writing regs on, on payment adjustments for skilled rehab facilities. You know, it took HHS like two, three years to write these regs. Right. Well, you can't. They, they. This is insane. This is the Steve Bannon dream, right? To strangle the entire administrative state to make sure that federal agencies, with all of its expertise and authority and deep knowledge. <laughs> Uh, can yes. go ahead and regulate a complicated world. This is the world we've lived in for 70 years. And the dream is to ensure that no regulations uh, will ever come up to snuff because they'll never be specific enough. Or the, there's, you know, whether it's major questions doctrine or whether it's Chevron deference or whatever else it is that, and this is why they were able to set aside the mask or test regime uh, that the court used so that Essentially, what you're establishing is, and and Justice Kagan wrote in a dissent last year, that all of government is essentially unconstitutional. And as you said, uh, Congress had better like bone up on like, you know, airwaves and health policy because they're going to have to do it all themselves. And if if we did that, can you imagine the size staff we'd have? So what we'd have to do, we'd just have to take over the buildings where the EPA is or where, <laughs> you know, where all these agencies are with Senate staff and House staff. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. 
But it is, you're right. It is uh, what Bannon wants. Let's talk about some of these other ones. School prayer. <laughs> the coach um, on the fifth. What, Kennedy, what Kennedy versus was? Bremerton. Yep. Okay. Now, what I love about this is Gorsuch wrote the opinion, right? And he basically said that this coach did this privately at the 50-yard line, but then Sotomayor published a picture in her dissent or in the dissent of the prayer at the 50-yard line surrounded <laughs> surrounded by a mob of people, including players. So if you want to be the starting tight end, uh, maybe it's a good idea to pray. Well, uh, Justice Gorsuch believes that there was no coercion, that none of his students who prayed with him, and by the end of, this was a years-long campaign, we should be clear. Gorsuch is such a trusting guy. His students just loved him so much that they wanted to take a knee with him uh, in the center of the field and pray to his God because there was no coercion. And maybe the best way to explain this case, um, and it's what Justice Sotomayor says in her dissent, and yes, her dissent, uh, she doesn't do this often, but it's full of black and white photos of this <laughs> coach engaged in quote-unquote quiet, private prayer with team members all around him and TV cameras rolling, and he had elected officials. He would invite the other team. And the school uh, kept saying, you know, that the, the, the cases are quite clear under the, this is the establishment clause, uh, right? We've talked about religious liberty, the free exercise clause. The establishment clause says that the state just can't sanction sectarian prayer, Teachers may not uh, open the school day at a public school with uh, sectarian prayer to the God of their choice. And this has been the law for a very, very long time, partly because the court says that they are very solicitous of children who are captive, who don't get to walk up and leave. And in this case, you had Coach Kennedy, who the school tried to accommodate. They did everything they could. They said, could you go here and pray quietly and privately? No. Could you go here? Could you do it at this time? No. It had to be at the 50-yard line, and it had to be right after the game when everybody was on the field and everybody was around. And then he had to tell the press over and over again that the school wouldn't accommodate him. And one of the incidents that Justice Sotomayor describes literally has people running down into the field to pray with him, knocking over band players, the poor tuba player, like goes over sideways like an elephant. And all of this is, as you're saying, characterized as private, quiet prayer. And what I really noticed last week when I went through and looked at that opinion is that the word privacy and quiet attaches more often in that opinion to Coach Kennedy than the word privacy ever shows up in Justice Alito's opinion in Dobbs. Mm -hmm. So privacy follows, I guess, Christian male coaches wherever they go, and privacy attaches to women who are one second pregnant, never. Talk about the use of the shadow docket. Basically, shadow docket usually, usually wasn't the shadow docket used like if some guy's going to be executed and they're, they appeal to the Supreme Court and they've got that week or, you know, there's going to be executed on Sunday and they take it in the shadow docket and decide or something. I mean, but now they're doing like they did SB8 crazily in the shadow docket. 
Right. And it's important to say, since we're huge Justice Alito fans, that although he thinks that the term shadow docket was invented by liberals to drag him, in fact, it was invented by a conservative law professor, the term uh, Will Bode, who wanted to try to explain that this emergency docket that you're describing, and it's always existed, the court needs to be able to act quickly in some cases, was increasingly being used to decide cases on the merits, to decide them. Frequently, they were popping up at midnight, as the SBA was. Frequently, the orders had no reasoning. It was just an unsigned order. There was no briefing. There was no argument. The court just kind of flipped a coin and said, you lose. And not just SBA, it was decided on the shadow docket this summer without comprehensible reasoning why that was allowed to go into effect. But the Remain in Mexico policy was decided on the shadow docket, as was the Biden eviction moratorium. So when the court started the October term on the first Monday of October, all three of those huge cases had been decided on the shadow docket, as had some of the the House of Worship, uh, the rules on how many people could attend in COVID. The court had set those rules aside, those occupancy requirements, and said, It's going to sound familiar. Oh, these meddlesome state agencies who are trying to do health policy are trammeling the religious liberties of worshipers. This was in peak COVID. Those cases were also decided on the shadow docket. And then they're decided in future COVID cases as though those were merits decisions that were well-reasoned. So the court has this entire architecture of invisible cases, sometimes with no reasoning, sometimes with, we don't even know who voted. We just know that they got enough for a majority. And when the term started in October, the court's popularity rating was at an all-time low, like 37, 38%, the lowest in the history of Gallup, because people were like, your one thing is you show your work and you explain (laughs) what the reasoning is so we could apply it to future cases. And the public was starting to feel very hinky about this. So the court continues all term to decide cases on the shadow docket. And I should note that when the term ended last week, the court had historically lowest, even lower than the one from September. Now the popularity rating is at 25%. Uh, So given the opportunity to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't keep deciding cases in the middle of the night with unsigned opinions that nobody knows what the doctrine is, the court doubled down and continued to do it all year. One other case uh, that caught my, well, a couple others, one, the one on Indian country, uh, this is Oklahoma case. And this one I feel strongly about, and oddly Gorsuch does too. You know, 80% of, of sexual assaults in Indian country of, of native women are done by non-Indians. And um, so I fought for this and we got it, which was that tribal courts can prosecute because basically the state, you know, county and state courts were not doing it. We're not prosecuting these guys. And this is a very emotional issue in, in uh, Indian country. They reversed that in, in, in Oklahoma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I think it's exactly what you said. It is calling into question uh, tribal sovereignty over native lands. They uh, Suddenly the court is okay with uh, dual sovereignty. And as you say, it absolutely eviscerates, you know, one of the in- 
incredibly important powers that Native Americans tribes had, which is to be sovereign on uh, their own territory. And uh, you're quite right that the interesting thing about this is that Neil Gorsuch, who unfailingly sides uh, with his conservative brethren on everything else, has been unbelievably solicitous of Indian rights uh, throughout his uh, career, not just on the Supreme Court, but also uh, at the Appeals Court at the Tenth Circuit. Uh, There is just reason to believe that because he thinks of himself as a Westerner and certainly uh, is very, very, very concerned about Native American rights, he is really persistently on the side of tribal sovereignty. This is another issue, by the way. There's some Native American rights cases to watch for next year. But it is absolutely the case, and you're completely correct, that this was just a gut punch to the idea that tribes could have sovereignty. Uh, Affirmative action is going to come up next term, right? Uh, Affirmative action in higher education is coming up. And this is a case I know we've talked about before, but it will probably signal the death now for affirmative action in higher education. It's also worth noting, just because we've talked about Clarence and Ginny Thomas, the marriage that never quits, that Katanji Brown Jackson said uh, in her hearing that because uh, she has served in some capacity, and I can't remember what it is, uh, at Harvard, which is the school that is uh, affected here, she will not not sit on this case. So it will be decided, uh, you know, with one less liberal. But Clarence Thomas has still failed to recuse on case. You know, she's been sworn in. Can't she just pull a... One of what they do, which is like, you know what? I've changed my mind. I mean, okay. I think you got the wrong girl. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, I. Um, oh, wait, can we do one more case that's coming up just because it's important? Sorry. Yes. 30 yes. Seconds? Yes. 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 Um, just yes. It's, it's it's worth flagging uh, because we've talked about um, LGBTQ rights and how the decision in Dobbs implicates those unenumerated rights. That there's another case coming up that is going to. I think sort of push forward this idea that religious liberty always swamps the civil rights of everyone else. And that is a follow on to, you remember Masterpiece Cake Shop? That was the Colorado sure. baker who didn't want to bake a cake to solemnize a same-sex wedding. This is the follow on case where there's a web designer who is similarly making a First Amendment claim to refuse to work on same-sex weddings. And I think that uh, this just feels like it's of a piece with this larger theme we've dis- been discussing kind of this whole show, which is that the religious liberty and First Amendment rights of certain religious dissenters are going to increasingly swallow a whole bunch of, bunch of other constitutional values, including marriage equality. And I should just say that the court has put very, very few, actually, uh, cases on the docket for next year. Uh, it's, it's kind of less than we're used to at this time. But the number of, there's also a blockbuster about interpreting the Voting Rights Act and redistricting, and it looks very bad for, uh, you know, the, the ability to use the Voting Rights Act in uh, uh, racial redistricting cases. So I guess what I want to say is the cases that are already on the docket are so consequential. And then adding that 
independent state legislature desert uh, to, you know, at the very, very end of the term signals that anyone who thought this was a kind of one-off where the court had nine blowout cases, uh, it's not a one-off. I think this persists. Let me ask you about gerrymandering, just because when did they decide (laughs) that they couldn't decide on gerrymandering that, that was partisan, but could do it on race. And are they doing it? Are they challenging that? Or is that what's going to be challenged? Well, these, hold on one second. What was the case? I just need to look up the year. Um, It was 2019 uh, that the Supreme Court made a decision that, uh, and it was a 5-4 decision, that the court just cannot reach issues of gerrymandering for partisan political gain. The court decided those issues are just not justiciable. It was supposed to mean that racial gerrymanders were still um, justiciable, except as we've seen uh, again in shadow docket orders from Alabama and from Louisiana this year that the court- Those are too late. Yes. Yes. Well, they're always going to be too late now, but those are are gerrymanders that are going to be allowed. And this is, I mean, hugely distortive of the black population uh, in these two states. Um, and the court is going to let them stand. And I think that this case that's coming is essentially the court ratifying that as opposed to just doing it in secret. So at that point, I think there is a real question. In, in both those cases, the uh, the circuit courts had ruled that the uh, the gerrymandering, the, the redistricting was, was racist. Yes, and impermissible. Yep. And impermissible, and that. Uh, but by the time it got to the Supreme Court, it was too late. It's it's this idea that's called. It's another one of these kind of fake doctrines called the Purcell principle that you're not supposed to futz with uh, election proceedings close enough to an election that it would, you know, affect the outcome of the election and throw everything in. To disarray, but it seems to only be arising weirdly uh, in cases where Democrats would uh, benefit. So the court has no problem with the Purcell principle, uh, except for when it benefits Democrats or people of color, and then it's always going to be too close to the election. And that maybe it's kind of where we started, which is, you know, when we talked last time and you said I was worried about democracy itself, you know, the malapportioned Senate and the Electoral College and the filibuster and all the ways in which every problem we've talked about today, whether it's abortion or sectarian prayer or fixing the environment, every one of these problems is not just about abortion or just about the environment or just about guns. It's a problem of having a court that is actually complicit in making it harder to vote. And the court, through the gerrymandering cases, through the voter suppression cases, and yes, through this like terrifying independent state legislature case, are completely complicit in making sure that minoritarian rule prevails. Well, Dahlia, once again, uh, I just really love it when you're my guest. And uh, when 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 is uh, as the late Jerry Lewis uh, would call it? <laughs> Lady Justice. 
Lady Justice. When does that hit the bookstores? Lady Justice will be published by Penguin Press in September of 2022. And this is me telling you, I literally had to go through the entire draft because it goes to press this week and change may overturn Roe v. Wade to did overturn Roe v. Wade. So September 2022. And then you ask why I'm so very, very sad. (laughs) Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 